Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, welcome back to Pop Parenting. This week Avram and Ellie are talking about the movie Dead Poets Society. They are asking about what happens when parents can no longer tell themselves apart from their children. And noticing that this movie hits, different, after the passing of Robin Williams. Here we go. All right, we're live, we're ready, we're going. Um, Okay, welcome back everyone. Uh, Yeah, I would just love to tell everybody we are super psyched because... uh, we had a listener reach out to us who is in Alabama. His name is Emmanuel Marsh, and he's a therapist and a pastor and has his own podcast with one of your friends, Avram. What's, what's your friend's name? Yeah, um, Michael Kent. Yeah, so they have a podcast called Tell Me About Your Mother. So Tell Me About Your Mother. And they talk about different therapeutic models, and they use it to discuss different issues. And so apparently they've been listening to our podcast. And uh, Emmanuel Marsh reached out to us and said, why don't you do Boys in the Hood? Um, which actually, no, no, no. no. How did it work? Clarify. No, th- that was um, that was uh, me. Uh, I uh, we you and I were t- I think. Um, no. Uh, was it I one of the thought, things on our list? No, no. I thought um, I thought about that film because it's streaming live it's streaming for free right now either on netflix or amazon prime i was watching it and i was thinking there's so many issues that are um relevant to our, our podcast right coming but coming from a different you know a different culture a different country different race than you know most of our films all the characters are white right and i thought wow wouldn't it be great and then i thought hold on Ellie and I, both Jewish, both white. I don't know. Maybe we should try to find someone to come in and co-host. And oh, right away, I so I thought he had heard it and reached no. out, but okay, got it. Okay, totally cool. Uh, so anyways, I've been, li- been listening to his podcast and it's been super fascinating. So I'm really excited he is going to be on the show with us next week um, as we discuss um, one of my favorite movies as a teen, uh, Boys in the Hood. So I'm really excited that we're doing this movie and I'm so uh, thrilled that uh, we're gonna have Emmanuel joining us. So I'm looking forward to that, it's very cool. Very excited Um, as well. Okay, Um, so as per usual, I really thought that I would not cry watching this movie this time. I was like, I'm older, you know, I've integrated different things. Like, I'll, you know, I'll just enjoy, you know, the Robin Williams. And I got to tell you, it was even harder to watch it now, knowing what I know about Robin Williams. Like, you know, it was just that context of, you know, his absolute like love of life and trying to instill in these boys, like the idea the carpe diem. And then knowing how um, Robin Williams himself ended his own life, it was just so, um, you know, raw to watch that, you know, in light of that truth now. And I think, uh, uh, you know, the theme, ha- the, the film has so many themes to it and you kind of remember it being sort of like sad, but I forgot how poignant it is. It actually is a beautifully done movie and one that you don't see very often, I think anymore about that, um, like the journey of boys, 
You know, I think we don't watch that so much, even though they're in a privileged environment and even though they're, they have many things on their side that they don't recognize, you know, that journey of boys to becoming men is a rarely captured experience in that same way. I thought it was very interesting. I mean, we sort of saw um, similar themes in Less Than Zero, privileged kids. Right. Um, in particular, the bo the boys were, the, the uh, <clears throat> adolescent boys becoming young adults were, you know, had all the, uh, you know, um, money and, and possible connections that they could have. And uh, they were also very disturbed um, and struggling uh, be to become men. Uh, by the way, just, you know, it's interesting, uh, and this is, a, you know, a side topic, but it's interesting how um, actors, you know, do, do actors pick their role that suits their real persona, mm. or is it just a matter of accident? Because I'm thinking of someone else who um, their, their death, I, I found, um, for me, hit me harder than Robin Williams, just because I, I, I just, it's just an affinity thing. I just was very connected. Seymour Philip Hoffman. Right. Um, his death uh, was shocking and also similar to Robin Williams, a very, very powerful actor on screen. Mm. But there's one film in particular. It is one of the most, it, 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 it's such a beautiful film. It's very dark. Have you ever seen Love, Liza? No. Ellie, you <laughs> have to go see. Okay. It was written and directed by his brother. Um, I forget his brother's name. It's when people didn't really know Seymour Philip Hoffman at the time. And what he does is he plays a, um, he's a computer programmer whose wife uh, recently uh, committed suicide and he's dealing with the grief of her loss. Right. And he abandons his job and he takes up, it, it's going to sound so weird, but he takes up um, an interest in, um, uh, uh, oh, what's that called? Uh, a boating on water uh, models, plastic model boating. Yeah. Now, I know you're thinking this does not sound like an interesting film, <laughs> but he gets addicted to sniffing gasoline. It's amazing. And especially if you know Philip Fimor Hoffman's wow. life and struggle with heroin, um, then Robin Williams and him, and I wonder how many artists are like that, these tragic figures who play tragic figures, how much yeah. of real life and, and their actor life crosses. I don't have an answer for that, but it's something that I, I just find interesting. Well, when I read about the condition that Robin Williams had towards the end of his life that predicated, you know, his, his taking his own life, he had a condition where he would have incredible delusions and hallucinations and and go into these different states it was a brain um disease that he had and um i could only think of like the fisher king hmm. you know like if you remember the movie the fisher king where he plays this homeless guy who has these yeah. radical delusions and so i i started to think about the films that he did and i was like wow like there was so much prescience or like fitting of the intensity of his talent and the runaway train that was this disease that eventually you know ravaged the system so yeah I, I think there's there's some interesting parallels there for sure it was you know so it, so watching this movie in light of that really um you know you, i think i i always felt in this movie you saw the deep beauty of who he was there felt it felt like there was truth there and how much he cared about these kids and how much he cared about what he was teaching them. Um, you know, and, and so it, it really rang differently watching it now after his passing. It was very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you should know, we do a yeah. one foot or you want to jump right into the notes? No, no, please. Let's, let's do the one foot and uh, we'll jump into it. Okay. 
All right, let's do it. Um, hang on. I'm actually going to turn off this background here because it's driving me crazy. It's all like glitchy and weird. So as much as I love having my backgrounds for this, it's driving me a little crazy. So it's distracting. Here we go. Okay. All right. Instead, we'll look at the artwork that my daughter and me made. Oh, okay. that's lovely, by the way. Very nice. Great. It's fun, right? We did one of those paint Akira. nights together. It's lovely. Um, awesome. Okay, so on one foot, Dead Poets Society. So Dead Poets Society is uh, so named. Uh, this is a, you know, upper crust, very academically oriented private school um, in what seems like probably East Coast. I don't know if we ever actually hear where it is. Um, in, in Wikipedia, they say it was supposed to be Vermont. Right. So, so kind of East Coast, um, 1950s America, um, where, you know, these boys are sent to this prep school to basically end up in the Ivy League and all become doctors and lawyers and, and accountants and things like that. Um, and you sort of meet this cast of characters who are in their probably close to their, their last year. And, you know, they're struggling to try to figure out who they are in, in the midst of this very regimented, very strict environment. And they get a new English teacher. And the English teacher, of course, is Robin Williams. And he comes in and really tries to shake up for them the idea of thinking for themselves. So much of the school is built around um, read this, do this, must be this way. And he comes in and tries to free their minds. And it's the experience where, you know, the Dead Poet Society was a group that he himself was part of when he was a student at the school. And it was all about the power of poetry, the power of um, symbol, the power of being able to break out of the confines of whatever, you know, box you had been being, you had been put into. And he does all these great classes with them and they have these experiences and they actually start to self-realize in a very different way. Um, but, you know, the tragedy of the story that sort of pulls these two opposing pieces together is that one of the boys who clearly is a thinker and a sensitive person and he wants to become an actor, but his father has decided under no circumstances will he be doing anything other than becoming, I believe it's a doctor, um, and they wants, to, wants him to go to Harvard Medical School, and that is the only path that is open to him. And so through the um, back and forth where his father continues to refuse to let him do anything other than be um, totally focused on that, uh, this boy realizes what he really wants to do is act, and it really ends in tragedy where his father pulls the reins so tight um, that eventually this boy, he breaks and he takes his own life towards the end of the film. So, um, and, and then it's the fallout of that where the teacher becomes the scapegoat because the system doesn't want to take responsibility. Um, and, and all the boys, how they respond to loss, you know, so you see them in tremendous, you know, opening, and then you see them in tremendous, uh, closing. Um, and so eventually the teacher's fired and, uh, they all capitulate to the school um, but in the end, spoiler alert, you know, they sort of honor him in their, in their own way to tell them, tell this teacher before he leaves after he's fired, that he really made an impression on their lives. Okay. I think that was one foot. That was very good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is like a so, partial overview. <laughs> uh, 
you know, at risk of, of um, being contrary for um, contrary purposes, um, I hope it doesn't come across like that. But um, I think uh, when, when I saw this film, I probably was, well, it was 1989 this film came out. So I think I was in, I was either in first year university or my last year of CJEP in, uh, in Montreal. Um, this movie had a, a, a pretty big impact on me as well. I remember being sad as well. I did not have the same reaction watching the movie this time. And I think, well, partially I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm older, but um, I, I think the reason mostly why is you said something, I think it was, I, I can't recall Ellie if it was on the last podcast or an email to me. Remember you said to me last week, you can't watch a movie anymore since we've been doing this podcast. Right. Because we have such an eye towards like, who are the, what's happening? What are the dynamics of the relationship? And no, I can't right. watch movies without listening, thinking about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, right? Because um, I remember, I remember my favorite song uh, and still is in a way uh, was more than a feeling by Boston. And when my guitar teacher many years ago says to me, what song do you want to learn? You can pick any song in the world. I picked more than a feeling. And while it was an amazing experience learning that song, um, and uh, and and I learned everything—the solo, the every—I learned everything about the song. It took away the magic. Right. So when I hear more than a feeling right now, it's just not as magical as when I before uh, I learned how to play more than a Ooh, feeling. Interesting. Um, and I find the same thing happens with film now: is that there there is something there's a veneer that's no longer there uh, mm. for me. So when I watch the film now. I think there's a lot of good nuggets to chew on with respect to the focus of our podcast um, for parents and uh, issues around adolescence. I'm just not so sure that I would go to the source material itself. I think um, I would like to discuss some problems I had with the film. And what I mean by problems, I mean, I can understand what the filmmakers were doing, the writers were doing. I, I get it. Um, right. You need you need in a film you need villains and you need angels. Yeah. <clears throat> you need you need innocence and you need guilty. Yeah. And you need cause and you need effect. You got two hours. Right. But I think that's letting the filmmakers get off too easy. I think it's also true in our lives that um, uh, things are complex. Take, for example, COVID. Take the vaccine. People are saying, oh, my God, Canada's not going to get the vaccine until the autumn, they're saying now. The mm -hmm. autumn, Ellie. And the United States is going to get the vaccine in maybe a week or two. And the people are saying, this is on Trudeau. Well, is that really what's happening? Is that, right. is that the only variable at play here that Trudeau woke up one morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to mess over this country like you have right. been. I'd like life, to continue spending billions of dollars supporting people who are out of work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, life life is not that simple as much as we wish it were. And it calms us down because if we can find a villain, then our ire and our anxiety get directed in one place and we feel as if we're, we, we can do something about that, vote mm -hmm. the politician up, send the kid to therapy. You know, we can find a, a solution for our problem. I do not find life is that simple. I find life is much more complex. So let's take, for example, here's some things that I wanted to ask you just to throw this out here to start the conversation. Okay, so the first thing I'm thinking of, this is what I noticed. And I'm not so sure it comes across in the film, but I'm going to ask you what you think. Um, if I asked you, what do these kids fear? And, I, and that's, even, that's even being too general because they're different kids. But generally, 
what was your sense of what the kids fear? And then I'm just going to tell you where I'm going to go with this and just tackle each one. So what do the kids I would fear? say across the board, disappointing their parents would be kind of the top of the list, the common denominator for all of them, that they've all been highly invested in accomplishing something so that they're worthy in their parents' eyes. Um, but what, what do you think? The th it's interesting because I think that, that this is actually a very, very common <clears throat> excuse me, thing that I see and I work with, um, this feeling of real or imagined, by the way, that's important, real or imagined, this feeling of, re of disappointing my parents or bringing shame to my family, that I am doing something or saying something that will bring shame to my family. Do you think people still have that though? Well, I can only tell you, Ellie, uh, we've talked about this before. I can only tell you that when I get a, a referral, uh, it, it, I, I tend to work mostly with religious Jews, not religious. I mean, I have Christians um, and I have some Muslims in my practice who are religious, but they don't come to see me for um, issues, whether it's issues of theodicy or theology or mm. family dynamics. Or, right. don't, they don't tend to come to see me for that. It comes up, but that's not why. But I do get specific referrals from the Jewish community about um, religious Jews who have fallen out of faith. Uh, off the, we call it off the derech. They're right. coming to see me because it's causing a lot of problems for themselves and their family. And in mm. those cases, 100%, there's a great, um, there's a great, deal of um, a fear that they're going to be cut off from their family. There's a great deal from the family of fear that um, the tradition is being severed. You know, um, what I often hear in my office is some version of these millions of people didn't die in the Holocaust, you know, for you to leave this is this is sad this is not uh, this is not right but in like in the secular world do you do you still see kids as thinking that they don't want to disappoint their parents oh yeah for sure oh yeah 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 sure that that comes up all the time it just it changes it morphs right it, it morphs um so for example uh um a couple of things i can think of uh you pick a partner to marry and um, the father, the, your father and mother don't get along with your partner. They don't, they don't think it's a good match. They actually don't even like the person, mm. okay? Um, and right before the wedding, I'll get referrals, uh, premarital counseling, because things are out of control. Uh, the parents are saying, you know, look, if you marry that person, we're not going to support, you know, your wedding. We said we were going to support financially, but not this person. Right. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's a theme um, uh, that comes up. Um, you know, it, one could even say that the, if anything, the reason why this issue uh, in 2020, where kids um, aren't doing what they what they were doing in Dead Poet Society, choosing a different career path, is because kids are so anxious to follow in step that as much as we think that in 2020 we are. Uh, counter-cultural, you know, rebels doing stuff. I, I don't find that's the case. I find that there's so much anxiety about making a good living and and um, and, and this sort of a thing um, that there isn't too much of the, I was thinking of going to med medical school, mom, but I, I think I'm going to actually go to OCAD and get a fine arts degree instead. Right. Doesn't <laughs> See, happen often. Interesting. Very often. So huh. it does come up um, in my practice, um, but I, just to come back to the film here, what do you think the fear though, Ellie, is about? Like, what do you, what, so what do you think the kids are afraid of 
in terms of disappointing their parents. What's the fear? Okay, so my parents, my parents have been disappointed with me before. What's the big deal? I don't know. I think it's a good question because it to me just seems so culturally instilled. I don't think any of them have answered that question. I don't know. I, I can't imagine those parents would kick their kids out or cut them off or violently abuse them in some way. Like, I'm not sure if it's a real fear as much as it's just like a paradigm that they're in. I don't know. It's a good question. Well, it, what know, do you it's think? Interesting, right? Um, well, I, I don't know either. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why when I'm working with parents and they bring a teenager into a session, mm -hmm. one of the first things I ask the kid is, uh, there's a couple of questions I ask uh, uh, the teenager I'm most curious about. One of the questions I ask the teenager is, do you think your parents are proud of you? I don't ask about love. I ask, do you think your parents are proud of you? And then I ask them specifically about what? Right. What do you think your parents are most proud about you? It is... It shouldn't, it's not surprising to me anymore where the kids go, I don't know. Interesting. I, I'm not so sure. And then I'll ask them, who in your circle of friends, family, lovers, whatever, who knows you the best? It is very rare that a teenager will say, my dad. Hmm. It's a little bit less rare to say my mom. Right. You know, but mostly they'll say a friend. They'll say a close friend that my parents don't actually really know me. They'll say, I learned a long time ago not to really share what, you know, my thinking is on this or my interests or, you know. Um, and so it seems to be that coming back to this idea of uh, Bowen's idea of those two life forces of togetherness and separateness, right? That he said, those are, those are instinctual drives. The drive for togetherness is so strong that any threat, any threat that that would sever that, that you would be out of the tribe, mm, out of the family. Out of, it is so primal that you will, wow. you will cut off your tongue, you will swallow your tongue, you will do something to stay, to stay in. So the ultimate fear you're saying is like that disconnection. Like if I don't make them proud, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, somehow I will be cut off emotionally or disconnected in some way. And that is the ultimate, like, you're saying that's the ultimate fear? Well, it's, it, it, it goes even more than that. I don't know in your family, but I sure remember in my family, it just, I think it's true in all families. There were certain cousins in my family that were quote unquote models you don't want to, you know, uh, copy. Mm -hmm. And there were family members that were heralded as um, white shining armor type people. Mm -hmm. And as a little boy, I remember thinking, I want to be like the white shining armor people it wasn't even a question and the people who brought shame to our family i remember as a little boy thinking they're bad people hmm. they're doing bad things to this family hmm. no one wants to be part of a tribe where you're a bad person bringing bad things to i mean there's real consequences to that you know the hmm. the the wolf in a wolf pack the wolf that gets left behind because they're injured they die like this isn't like just you know i'm right. talking about from a from, so for that reptilian part of our brain, when you're left out of the community, you don't get the resources, you don't get the money, you don't get the, the, the emotional support, okay? And for all of our government support systems, it was never meant, a therapy and CAS and all, you know, Jewish family services, never meant to replace the family right. or the community. Right. Um, and so, yes, I think that there is a real existential threat for kids. And this is why, Ellie, so interesting, when uh, the, the few opportunities I got to work with street kids in Vancouver, whenever there was a chance for a lot 
to, to, that where they can become vulnerable about their families back in Quebec or, or New Brunswick. And they would sit down, they would break down and cry. They would say some version of, um, you know, uh, I'd go back, but they'd never have me or they, you know, they, so they still want to reconnect. But if you heard their story about the unbelievable sexual abuse they encountered, you think, why, why would you want to reconnect? Right, right. With such an abusive family, because there is something so primal about reconnecting with your family. It's, it's mm. really, quite, it was really quite incredible speaking to some of these kids uh, in mm. Vancouver. So be that as it may, it's a theory. I mean, you can, people can push back on the theory, but it seems to be we are drawn to tribes. We are drawn to family. And that is very, very important. And by the way, Ellie, and we see this now, Watch the reaction as politicians say you can't go home for Thanksgiving. Don't you can't spend and people get it intellectually, but no, it's big... already happening. I mean, people are people are losing their minds. <laughs> well, and they're, they're they're basically saying, uh yeah, sure. Right? Uh they're like, oh sure, I won't spend time with my family. Right. And so I'll tell idea... you, I'll tell you a funny aside that I just saw yeah. somebody was saying that uh you know, they were interviewing people on the news in the States and you know, how could they say this? This is Thanksgiving is holy to us. Like, you know, this is. And so some one of the reporters said, you know, just to mention, like the Jewish community has gone through Passover and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are, you know, significant holidays, you know, and they've done it all in a pandemic and, and found a way to do it. And several people were like, yeah, but those days aren't really holy for them. Like they're not really a big deal. <laughs> it's just like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's look, so I mean, interesting. Like that's a rabbit hole in itself. I mean, we wild. You know, um, you know, our community has uh, also uh, struggled with balancing the public health concerns for and sure, community concerns. Um, and so, I think there's going to be a reckoning in our own community when this is said and done in terms of how do you balance. How do you balance tradition, Jewish law, family and community, and protecting the public? And I think there'll be a reckoning at some point. Now is not the time, and this podcast right. is definitely not the podcast. Right. But so, so those are the kids. Now I have another question for you. What do the parents fear? In the film, do you get a sense that you can? Um, do, do you get a sense at all when the when you meet the parents that they fear something too? So it seems layered. It was it was hard for me sometimes to sort out the core piece of it because on one hand, like they didn't really view their kids as separate from themselves. That's what I saw. Like if a kid would speak when they weren't supposed to speak, it was like they would discipline them as if they were speaking in their own head, you know, like any part of themselves that would be out of control, they would respond the same way as they did when their kids were out of control. And so, you know, so I would assume that the fear had something to do with if their kids don't succeed, it says something about them as people, the parents. Um, but I, you know, if I'm tracing your line of thought, then I'm assuming it would also have something to do with separation. Like the, there was some kind of breakdown in the relationship if the kid isn't a successful person in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's true. Now, you know, you asked me before about what I see in my practice. This comes up my practice all the time mm. uh, with respect to um, 
uh, love and worry. We've talked about that before, it, maybe not in the podcast, but definitely in JFI talks where mm -hmm. you know you and I have presented. Um, uh, where love and worry work together. There is no such thing for parents as I love my kid, but I never worry. I, I, if, if there's a parent out there who has managed to do that, hmm. contact me. Right. We, will, we will write a book. <laughs> We'd like to hook you up to some machines and uh, <laughs> yeah, and learn your right. secrets. <laughs> antibodies. and uh, So it seems like love and worry are connected. Now, the question, of course, is worry about what? Well, that's family of origin stuff. So your family of origin, Ellie, would, would have seeded... Um, fertile soil for you to worry about things different from what I saw in my family. So I'll just be, I'll be some self-disclosing here. Um, my family did financially pretty well in the seventies, but the, the family business went bust in the late eighties. And I watched my father, who was the vice president of a family business, come to me and ask me if I know of any work at the, uh, um, the Jewish Y that I was yeah. working at. Yeah. So to watch my father for my critical years up to the age of about 19, be the vice president, he'd go off in the morning doing very important things, coming to me crying and asking me if I could um, find him a job, a minimum wage job at the Jewish Y was like a guttural punch that I can't even explain. Yeah. Uh, so I have, uh, I inherited watching this experience over the years of um, a real sort of primal fear around job loss and mm. financial issues. Um, it comes up in my marriage and it comes up here. And I have to be really, really <clears throat> careful about this and how it's going to impact my relationship with my kids. Mm. So these parents, I don't know what, for each one what that means. What is it? Why would a parent fear their kid not getting into Harvard? I don't know. I don't know. But I guarantee you, underneath the anger and the lectures they're giving their kids, there, there is fear. The only way you right. can find that out in the case of the end of the movie is when the kid says, no, I, I am going to continue to act. You hear the father say, what did he say? You're making me out to be, what was it? Either a, not a liar. A liar. He does. Was it a he liar? Says, You're making me a liar. <clears throat> Right, that in a way you're bringing shame onto this family because he mentioned uh, it had to come to me through another family, another girl. Did yeah. you not know this one? So clearly this man has a certain stature in the community. Mm. And what do we know about anybody who has stature in the community is that part of the uh, allure of that is the stature itself and that you right. don't want people chipping away at that, you know, it's the old Wizard of Oz story. You pull mm. the curtain back and it's just a little old man pulling levers. And that's all we are, by the way. That's all we are. President Obama, Rabbi right. Shuli. Like, we're just right. little... Except, except it's women. usually like a six-year-old. It's not so much an old man as much as it is like an eight-year-old who just doesn't know what they're doing. Right. You know, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're more sophisticated than an eight-year-old. But, you know, I think that... I think that a lot of us, um, uh, you know, hide behind our neuroses and our anxieties and our doubt behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. So that, it's hard to know, but I would argue the parents also fear something. So you got the kids who are afraid of disappointing the parents. You got the parents who are afraid that our kids are going to abandon the family and get in trouble or danger. And the trouble is, so in my family would be financial, in another family it would be religious, in another family it would be whatever it would be. But there's something that drives the fear that gets in the way of a parent being a wise elder to a teenager. And this is important because the question, of course, is why did John Keaton, Keating, Keating? Keating, yeah. Why did he have such 
I would I would say a disproportionate amount of power over these kids. Meaning, why were these kids so susceptible to um, an elder male in their lives? How? Why? Now, one would say, oh, because he was so dynamic and he was such a great teacher. I, I call BS on that. I do mm. not think that's that that was the only thing. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why cults work. There's a reason why powerful leaders get a certain type of person in their inner circle. Okay, these boys for whatever reason, were obeying their parents, but I'm not so sure, but I think they were hiding themselves from them. And I, my argument would be with Keating, they were allowed to flourish in what we call, you know, our best self or our, you know. Um, and so, uh, so okay, last one for you. Again, okay, then we're going to move on. This is my other question. What do you think the administrators feared? What do you, you know, remember at the beginning, they right. give that big speech. He mm -hmm. gives the big speech. Right. Tradition, now, discipline. Now, you, we know this, right? Because our kids go to Jewish day school. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question. What do you think uh, Jewish administrators and principals are afraid of the most in, uh, in these schools? So first of all, it depends on the school. Okay. Uh, but certainly, um, well, I think you have to ask a couple of things. You, you'd have to ask it as an educator, because I know some really incredible educators in that system who would fear, you know, if a kid falls through the cracks, if a kid, you know, if something really bad happens to one of their kids. And then you have to think of it like a business, which is if we lose our donors, we cannot continue to do what we do. So there's two different concerns that often war with each other. Knowing who I know in the Jewish day school system, it's very much a struggle to figure out how to deal with difficult kids whose parents are donors. It takes, I'll tell you, Ellie, I'm going to tell you, a, a, but I'm going to leave out the names. Yeah, <laughs> so we, gonna, we're not going to use any identifying many years monikers ago, here. Uh, many years ago in Montreal, uh, I was privy to um, uh, something where a, a donor wanted to give to a Jewish camp uh, money, a lot of money. But they wanted to, they wanted, what, it's so funny, they wanted to give the money, but the plaque had to be a certain size for their name, for the family name. So the, the camp director said, you know, what we really need are canoes, like badly. The kids, it, it's dangerous, some of the, we could, and, the, and they said, well, send me the size of the canoe. So the, the, pl the plaque won't, the, it just won't work. The plaque won't fit on the canoe. So the camp director says, well, we can get like bigger canoes. You know what? I'm, the whole canoe thing doesn't work for me because they broke down. And so they said, we we're, we're, we'd like, picture like, like a Viking ship. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, that's right. Exactly. Across the lake with cannons. <laughs> so the director said, said look, I, I, I'm not sure. He says, you know what? What about a couple of nice big benches? Because benches will be there a long time. And he said, We've got so many benches in this camp. We really don't, we don't, the kids don't even sit on the benches. We don't need more. The donor pulled their funds from the camp. Now this is a mm. camp, by the way, that really needs the funds. Mm. So imagine the director has to answer their board of directors about why they lost the funding. You see, this is where, when we talk about mature right. leadership, you know, it's easy to talk about mature leadership when there isn't finances on the line. But what about in a Jewish day school if 15 parents, 30 parents go up to a principal and say, if you teach that book or teach this class, or if you allow that student into your school or this idea, we're pulling all of our kids out of your school. Mm -hmm. Now, public school, I, I don't know. 
<laughs> what happens in a public school if you pull 30 kids? I don't know. Well, we saw what school. happened with the new sex ed curriculum a while ago in the public schools where there were many parents that were felt very uncomfortable with it. Right, and but it was, it, but it, it, it threaten the existential. Uh, the, of course the, not, because the public school system doesn't rely on donations from individual people with individual opinions. Um, you know, it's it's more protected than that. So any, you know, any private school that is not funded by the government, which by the way is any school other than pub public or Catholic, um, are is going to be reliant on on donations from parents. So yeah, if they're if the parents are big donors. There's some challenges there. Yeah, so I could, so you could put this in the category of you could take Branksome Hall, UCC, right. Associated, any private school, okay, that is a business model where your kid that comes here that that money allows us to exist. Right. The administrators have an existential fear of something happening. Think of what happened in St. Mike's last year with yep. helicopters hovering. I, I lived in that area. Helicopters were hovering, news helicopters were hovering over St. Mike's right. as that uh, those stories were breaking. Right. It is a nightmare scenario for administrators. So when that guy, that principal, that, I, that great actor, I forget his name, stands up and talks about, and our boys have gone on to Harvard. He's speaking to the parents' hopes and wishes. Whether right. he believes it or not, I actually don't know. I actually don't mm. even believe it, by the way. I don't think they care if, they're, if, if, if their students go on to Harvard. I really don't. I believe actually a lot of these administrators um, are teachers who love to teach. But like, like a rabbi or a priest who loves the Bible, but they end up doing like fetching congregants all day, like they, they're not teaching Torah. They're just like, I know, I know the challah was a little stale this Shabbos. I know, I know. <laughs> like that's what they do. Like they, they listen to people fetch. Right. A lot of these administrators probably love to teach. They went in to continue, but they end up, they end up trying to um, uh, create a scenario of um, whatever fear you have or wish you have mom and dad we're going to satisfy that's what your money is going and that that i found the speech belies the anxiety of the administrators which is yeah. if you vote in this school if you teach something different i.e keating okay you're going to unleash something that might threaten the existential uh, viability of this school and that's a really tricky thing to balance. It's it's a, it's a position I don't envy uh, leaders who have to go through that. For um, sure. That, that, Although that there were things. there were indicators from the head of school because they show a contrasting relationship between the head of the school and the Latin teacher and how they relate to Keating, because the Latin teacher feel like he teaches everything rote and you know says like you know you shouldn't be teaching boys to think for themselves which is echoed by the school administrator but he and keating develop a friendship where they kind of parse back and forth a little bit about about free thought and three and free speech whereas the director of the school seems to wholeheartedly believe that you are absolutely not supposed to be teaching these boys to think for themselves. He, in fact, he says it at one point, they'll have lots of time for that once they've graduated university. Um, so I think there is here a, a, you know, a, a pedagogical way of saying this is boys, these boys should not be thinking for themselves. They should not be seen for who they are. They should be trained and set up to be able to go to these schools and become these doctors and lawyers. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's why he gets so upset. It's it's the money thing, but it's also an ideological thing, which it seems to look like to me. You know, 
the Latin teacher and, and any of us, you know, uh, when I worked for uh, nonprofit agencies, the fact is the buck didn't stop with me. So, right. you know, I could support any idea as a social worker at CAMH or something. Uh, when I was in a supervisor at CAMH, I can support any idea, but I don't have to deal with the funders. Right. I don't have to deal with the government. Right. Uh, my my supervisors and really not my supervisors but the supervisors of supervisors right they're the ones who have to go to these meetings where you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands millions of dollars on the line if you rock the boat mm. um anyways a story for a different time but all, all i'm trying to point out here is that i think the film suggests that the kids are the ones who have this existential struggle with being more of a self i would argue it's everyone yeah in this film um, is being driven by fear and anxiety and and the film seems to suggest they're all operating out of more of an anxious uh, self and what we know about anxiety it's like the flu it moves through the circuits and everybody gets impacted by it in different ways mm. um, so I just want to throw that out there as a as an idea um, it's something that uh, again um, eyes wide open now when I watch films I, I try to look for this kind of stuff and that's what I sort of saw here I I definitely have seen it in the agencies I've worked for um okay next topic I've got a whole bunch <laughs> by the way. I don't know where you want to go with this but I got a whole, where, where do you want to go well let me throw one thing in because I remember when I was working as a personal trainer I had several parents come to me wanting me to train their like 11 year old son or daughter um, and I say son or daughter because there were multiple instances of this. And when I asked the parents if the kid wasn't involved in a sport that, he, that they specifically needed to be trained for, what is it that you're concerned about? It was always kind of like, well, let me just tell you, like, I'm, you know, I'm a little worried that they're getting pudgy and, and, and a little bit overweight. And, and I'm really worried that they're like, not going to have friends or people aren't going to like them big fear that's a big and fear. and it was fascinating to see because really what i was hearing was i'm afraid people aren't going to like me because my kid is overweight right i'm afraid people are going to look at me and say i'm not okay in some way because the kid was like you know, fine. <laughs> like, like they were happy to do it. But what did the kid feel every time in that situation? My, my parents think there's something wrong with me. And so they're sending me to you because none of my other friends have to do this. Yeah. And, and it was really hard to watch that trickle down, like the, you know, that real anxiety from the parents. So it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of this, you know, what you say that the parents had some idea in this film of how their kids needed to be in order for them to be seen as successful parents, um, you know, or successful, whatever it is. Um, that, and it just didn't have anything to do with the kids and the kids are sort of bearing the brunt of their parents' pressure. Yeah, it, it's something that um, uh, I really try to uh, nail home. And whenever I give a talk, I really try to, um, uh, differentiate these two ideas. The idea that if you love your child, you will worry about your child, in particular about the things that you experienced as a child. But there is a difference between the feeling of worry and what you do do about 
the worry. Mm. That, that's, that's very uh, important differentiation. So it seems to me the only difference between parents who get caught up in their worry and what they do and the parents who worry is the parents who worry with a bit more distance are the, are the parents who recognize this about them and not their kid. Mm. The parents who get caught up in, um, you are an extension of me. And if you're in pain, I'm in pain. And if I'm in pain, you need to do something to reduce my pain. That's fusion. That's all the old fusion stuff. Um, this is very powerful, by the way. I think that um, I'm always, um, I try to be careful when I talk like this um, in public because it, it, it almost assumes that I don't get caught up in this myself. I do. <laughs> so, well, I think people so, think uh, about it differently because if we were to say the very same thing about anger, everybody would be on board with that. Well, of course, you know, like when I get angry, it's not, you know, if you, if you understand, you know, some of the basics of, of pop psychology, even like, no, it's not what your kids do, it's that you're getting angry and you need to learn to manage your anger. Otherwise your kids won't know how to manage their anger also either. But when we shift it into worry, somehow people are like, but you're supposed to worry. You know, that you're supposed, that's something, if you don't do that, you're not being a good parent. Well, the and, question and, that gets thrown at me thing. is, what you, yeah, so, so the question that always gets thrown at me is, well, what am I supposed to do about it? Right, what, what how I do I worry do? and not put it on my kid? Like, what does that well, even well, look like? <clears throat> well, it, no, it, it's, it's, it's more sort of like, um, hey, this is my kid. Mm. They're in pain. I mean, this is not like, and by the way, some of it's true. Like this is, right. you know, I mean, if a kid does come back home um, and they say, and they're crying or they're in their room and the door's closed and you would come in and you say, you know, what's going on? I don't want to talk about it. Well, what's going on? I don't want to talk about it. And they finally talk about it and they say, um, someone was passing a note in class. It fell on the floor. People were snickering. I found it and it said, uh, Johnny, Johnny is a, a lard ass. And that's your kid. And they're telling you right. this. Your heart is just breaking. A, because your kid's in pain and you're watching this. I mean, it's going to take a superhuman being that I don't know, right, to not want to do something about that. Hmm. But the key, and it's, it's really hard. This is not easy stuff. The key is to ask yourself, here's, a, here's something granular that uh, we can come back to again and again, because I use this with my clients. I, use, I, I try to do this myself as often as I can. It's always helpful to ask two questions. And we might even post this, by the way, on um, on the page one day, our Facebook okay. uh, post. Two questions are helpful to get um, some distance from your kid's pain. The first question is, what is the problem? So imagine your kid says, so your kid comes home and they they um, they are uh, really upset because of something someone said in class, real or imagined. So the question, what is the problem? So there's lots of different problems, first of all. There's not one problem. Your kid has a problem and you have a problem. The mistake parents make is that my kid's problem is my problem. We have the exact same problem. You don't have the same problem. You have different problems. So if a parent can define what the problem is, so one version of it might sound like the problem is that I am taking on my child's problem as my own when it's not my problem. I've got other problems. I've got a marriage. I've got a business. I've got uh, uh, my GP wants me to lower my blood pressure. I've got other problems. So that's the first thing. What is the problem? And the next question, if you can answer the first question, because the first question is tough, the next question is, and who's the best person to solve the problem? Right. Right. So let's say your so, so let's say your kid goes, let's say your kid defines it. So I'll ask a teenager, what's the problem? And the kid says, I'm, I'm overweight. 
I'm overweight. I know it. And by the way, I'm looking at the kid. He's overweight. Like, it's not like he's like, it's like you know, okay, so you're overweight. Okay. So I'm overweight. Okay. What's the problem? I'm overweight and I'm concerned about my health. Let's say that's what a kid says, which I don't think they would, but let's say they said I'm overweight. And I'm concerned about my health. I'm like, okay, what do you want to do about it? I don't know. Okay. Who do you think is the best person to solve this problem? Mom. Really? Mom? How is, how is it mom's responsibility to solve your weight problem? Now, this gets interesting. If the kid says mom and mom cooks dinner every night and she's cooking, I don't know, caramelized popcorn for dinner every night. Well, that's an interesting. Okay. So, okay. I, I can. Yeah, maybe. Okay. We can, you know, we can sit down as a family and talk about it. But that's not usually what's going on. Okay. So, again, what's the problem? Who's the best person to solve the problem? And when parents and teenagers are honest, they have different answers to the first question and they have different answers to the second question. And that is literally the, the, the definition of uh, the concept of differentiation of self, at least with parents and teenagers, that we are not, I love you and I gave birth to you, but we are not the same person. Mm. And my job as a wise elder is to provide you with the space to lick your wounds, come and speak to me, right? I can provide you hopefully with a quiet space to think through next steps. And if I can, because I have the resources or I've got the connections, give you some money to get some help, right? Listen to you, find you someone in the community because I'm part of a parenting Facebook group who has resources. But beyond that, it is your problem to solve. And that's right. really hard if you're fused with your kid. And the problem with this film and I'm not sure we're going to have time to get into it, but the main problem with the father and the son in this film, Ellie, is the fusion between the father and the son. Right. And that, and, uh, oh my God, I can, okay. So I'm going to stop there. Is there, let's, <laughs> we've got a few minutes left here. Where, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, look, I think that's, that's the place to go. I think how, what happens when a parent is so fused that they no longer see a difference between themselves and their kid and uh, the reverse being then the kid no longer sees the difference between themselves and their parents or is trying to break that somehow. They're trying to find themselves, which is really, like you said, what, what happened with Keating? He gave these kids the eyes to see themselves as separate from their parents from the, for the first time. So what happens when things are so fused? What are, what are the steps? What are the things that have to happen? Is it a breakable, like, do things just break? Because a lot of the time you see that just like totally backfires and then, you know, they don't talk for 10 years. Or is there a way to start to unhook that fusion? And does it have to come from the parent? Ooh, yeah. Lots of good questions. <laughs> and only uh, 10 minutes to answer them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good questions. Okay. So um, I just want to suggest the following. And Ellie, I would ask you this question. I'd ask the same question of me. So let's say I have fusion with one of my kids, which of course I do, because fusion exists in all of our relationships. So so, or I ask you, Ellie, which kid, and I don't, you, I don't want you to answer this, but if you right. thought, but which kid of yours do you find gets, gets you worked up inside more than the other one? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you identify that kid. Okay. So you, you know it right away. Boom, this kid. Okay. And then you think, and then you ask yourself the question, okay, what is it about what's getting worked up within me that is unique to me that I knew this before my kid was born? So you identify it. 
And then you ask yourself a question, how far back does this go? Hmm. So let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use me because I don't mind because I, it's me, so I don't mind self-disclosing. So I've often talked about my relationship with my father that was fractured, that got healed in, in um, the last 10 years of his life. We had a very nice relationship. But up until that point, we had a very distant cutoff relationship. He also had a distant cutoff relationship with his father, my grandfather. Now, I never knew my grandfather that well, but I am willing to wager that he also had a distant cutoff relationship with his father. So Murray Bowen had this idea, which I, I, I just think is funny. He said, whenever you want to blame someone in your family, right? If you want to blame someone in your family for how you turned out or something, he's like, you know, just pick how far, you know, which generation, how far back you want to go. Right. So he's like, so if you want to blame someone, he's like, if you really want to like be accurate about it, right. Blame your great, 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 great grandmother. You know, like if you're going to pick someone, right. you know, because his, his idea is it wasn't your parents. I mean, they didn't ask to be brought into this world. Mm. Right. Like if you think about the way you were raised with your parents, you right. think they came up with all of that on their own Tuesday yeah, at 930 sure. at night. No, that's not how it, and it wasn't because of a parenting book they read. Okay. Right. We learn to love hug, kiss, discipline, more or less through osmosis from what we saw growing up. Right. Okay. So this father and Harvard and medical school and the fear of his kid becoming an actor and not, how many generations back does that go? And what I mean is, I want to be clear here. I mean, the focus on his son, the focus on his son. So one right. could say, did this father go to Harvard and become whatever he was? Because his father went to Harvard. Now, I know for a fact, Ellie, by the way, because I work with many of these families, families, for example, who go to Branksome Hall or UCC, their parents went to Branksome Hall, UCC, their grandparents went to Branksome Hall, their great grandparents gave money right. an endowment fund. This isn't all evil. It's just People right, and then, and then the, the flip side of that is the father in the movie, in uh, Dead Poets Society, he says, we're not like the other families here. Like, he clearly comes from a situation where Harvard was not even an option for him. Um, and I think if you think about the 1950s, so he was probably brought up during the Depression, right? He was probably brought up during the time where it was absolute abject poverty. You know, so you kind of hear that even opposite thread <clears throat> like this isn't because you won't fit in with the rest of the family this is because i don't want you to fit in with where i came from you know that, and this, that is intense. What, and this is why murray bowen uh one of his the, one of his brilliance in training therapists was don't get ca caught up in the content of what your clients are saying watch the process so what, what is mm. he talking about he would say when a client says to you and my wife did this and then she does this and then she does that you're not the content's not interesting it has nothing to do with helping this couple. You're listening to um, their backstory and what is fueling how they got all worked up. So, for example, let's take your example. The content is Harvard, medical school, um, uh, drama, Keating. That's, that's content, the, the details, the facts, or the details of the matter. The process is exactly what you're saying. You can have one kid who's parent and grandparent and great parent, lots of wealth, always went to Harvard. That's the process. The process is you're going to continue this lineage because the fear of breaking the lineage would bring such a, so much shame to this family. The other family, the process is fear too, but it's fear exactly what you're saying is I don't want you to end up like the, 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 uh, the struggle and the hunger that I experienced. 
So what Bowen said is don't get caught up on the content of the two stories. It's coming, the, the process is the same. And so you're, you're alluding to that right now. It's not about the content. It's about how anxiety gets passed from generation to generation, which creates this fusion between parent and child where the child has no hope in hell of, of finding themselves and the parent. And let's be honest here. The film tries to kind of demonize the parents. But in some cases, the, parent, the, the film does a pretty good job of bringing some nuance too, because you get the sense the father loves the kid. The father doesn't... There are scenes where the father is standing with the kid with a beaming smile. He's at the school with his boy and right. just loves his kid. And the mother at the end of the film, tragic. It's just tragic. She just loves her kid, but the mother's lost too. Right. right. So these are parents who love their kids. And I think that people get lost in some of these films where it's kind of like, oh, if they love the kids more. No, it's probably too much love. <laughs> they right. love their kids too much. Right. You know? uh, interesting. So it's very important not to get caught up in the content when you're watching a film like this, if you're interested in, in understanding the dynamics, but to watch the process. So yeah. you're absolutely right, Ellie. It's, it, it could come from two different sources, but the end result's the same. A young person who has no space to share with the wise elders in his family of, here's my thoughts on politics, and here's my thoughts on God, and here's my thoughts on sex, and here's my thoughts on this. I'm not sure. I'm still trying to work it out in an open free safe way with their parents most kids will say to me they do they they, they um they cannot i just gotta share one quick thing with you ellie and then we'll, we'll just open it because it just happened to me last night i'm not gonna name names i don't want to embarrass my kids <laughs> so one of my kids is uh all my kids except for judah my three-year-old my kids like to read so i go by and i see one of my kids reading on their kindle i think they're just they are engrossed on their kindle and I go by and I'm just like behind his shoulder. And I'm, I start looking at what he's reading and what he's reading is a little risque. Not like, not like, you know, right. like more risque than, and I couldn't tell why I was getting so worked up about it because when I thought afterwards, like I, I've never given this any thought. And that's the problem when you have kids, right? Mm. Um, that it's all like learning as you go because like, yeah, yeah there's, there's a so, lot of improvisation there yeah, exactly and so i'm thinking and i got really and so i we got into a discussion about you know this isn't appropriate no whatever and anyway, i left the encounter and i sat by myself afterwards and i thought how do i know what's inappropriate a how do i know what's inappropriate for him and 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 did i create a condition where he's going to feel comfortable to share with me and of course my answer was i did not <laughs> because yeah. i saw his face he was it's it's it, 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 his the look on his face was he got his hand caught in the cookie jar mm. and, and and i got i gotta be better next time mm. you know so i guess I, i'm sharing this story all this to say that you know you know with all of my training and all this kind of stuff when it's my kid who I love and I want to protect, I can get right caught up in there. And, and you know, I, when I think back to my family, I don't remember having really open at all conversations with my father about sex or about relationships. I, I learned very early on, he was not the right guy to speak to about that. It was right. my friends. So we all have to be a little bit humble and forgiving of ourselves and other people. This is hard, hard work. And as Bowen says, and I agree with him, it's generations in the making of how we get ang anxious about our kids. And so we've mm. got to be a little bit humble about, you know, a soft touch about how to move forward and progress. And one of the nice things about the work that I do, and I think it's exciting, 
the work that I do, is that change can happen this big. Very little change can have profound impacts uh, down the road. Um, but it always starts with the parent. The change always has to start with the parent because the kid doesn't have the emotional financial power to make those kind of changes. Um, right. And that's why you know, mid-20s, late-20s young adults in my office will be much more successful reworking their relationship with their folks than a 14-year-old. Okay. We're, well, let's, uh, Actually, one thing I'm going to say, I just want to throw out here because, yeah. you know, I wonder how much of the difficulty we get into as parents. And I think about this when I, you know, even when we watch the film, like, how was this father surprised that his kid wanted to do acting, right? And it was his, partly his not having entertained the question that that could even happen, made it so that he was dealing with it on the fly, which is like never good because it means he's just dealing with it out of his anxiety, rather than having already anticipated that something like this could be coming down the pipeline and have decided where he stands or what he feels about that in relation to his kid before it was right in his face. And I just wonder how much of, because I see this with me with my kids, right? I'm not, can always you, can trying you explain to, that a bit more, Ellie? I'm not sure I'm following what so you're saying. So in like trying to decide what would be appropriate for our kids and what wouldn't be appropriate for our kids. So often we get caught because like you said, it just comes up and we suddenly have to deal with it. Yeah. Whereas I know when I really think about it, if I had thought through like, well, what are my boundaries around this? What are my principles around this? What do I believe for this particular kid would be appropriate? And what about the, for this? Like if I had done a bunch of this thinking beforehand, when the situation comes up, I don't go into anxiety because I already have a plan. You know what well, I mean? This is so why, I think Ellie, this is why Jewish Family Institute, when it's at its best, right? right when it's at its best, right. it serves as a think tank for parents to think through all these different scenarios, but right. you're never going to cover all of them. Uh, it's one of the things, Ellie, why you and I have always talked about um, uh, creating, I don't know if it'll ever happen, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated, but uh, creating some sort of a premarital program so couples think through many of the challenges that are, are, are bound to happen because it happens yeah. in every marriage. Yeah. So that you're not 15 years into a marriage where you've never thought about this, the problems hit, you're taken by surprise, you have no idea what's going on, right? right. And then you get all existential about, you know, you picked the wrong partner, bloody, bloody, but you just, you have no tools to prepare for it. Mm. But you know, it's interesting, Ellie, right? I mean, I don't know about you, um, but um, my kids, for example, uh, use something called roadblocks. It's a gaming, it's a gaming mm -hmm. thing yeah. on the, now, I don't know about you, I don't got the freaking time to explore every social media gaming platform. <laughs> I mean, because they're in school, they're trading things with their friends, by the way, and our kids are part of other subcultures in their school, which are part of other subcultures because of the families they come into. Mm -hmm. So um, again, a soft touch. We've been doing this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but more than ever before in 2020 information is hitting our kids at a rate that you and I never even experienced not even close to what our kids are exposed to. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna be able to cover everything. Um, so the question of course is, what are some of those you know, top level things that we just know, like spinach is good, right? Carrots are good, 
right? Lots of chocolate for supper, not good, right? There is general things. And so one of the general things that we know that, that you know, we can leave the podcast here would be anything that we can do, anything that we can do to orient the attention and the focus more on ourselves and on our kids will benefit the kids. Meaning that when there's a problem with our kid, if we can, we, it's easy to see everything that's wrong with your child or what the child might be getting into. That's easy. But the chances, if you keep focusing on that, your kid's going to distance from you. And if they distance from you, now you have no control or power over any that, that part of the relationship. You're not a wise elder right. to them if they're distancing right. from you. So what I tell my clients is the North Star for all of this kind of stuff is an open relationship with your kid where you can dial down the anxiety and take ownership for your part of the problem. If you can do that, if you can dial down some of that anxiety, right, the open relationship allows for, uh, you know, a, a, a more dialogue um, with your kid. Now, the problem, of course, is that a lot of people, this has been going on for years and years and years, is the kid, the kid will look at me in a session and say, I don't care if my parent changes on a Monday or Tuesday, I don't buy any of this. Like, I know my mom. Right. My and, that, and that's where I also think, like, that open relationship really only happens when you have a clearer relationship like with yourself and your own values and your own principles i think it's very hard for people to be open to others if they're not completely clear about what they themselves think i think that's a big part of the anxiety so i i actually think you know even more so focusing on ourselves you know because i know i can be a better wise elder with my kids when I'm very clear about what I think about a particular situation, because then I'm not afraid to explain it. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm not afraid to explore it, you know, but the things that I don't know about, those are the ones where I'm like, I can't answer you right now. I I actually don't, I don't know where I stand on that. I need to figure that out before I can respond to you. And that's, you know, because I know if I just respond, you know, it's going to be that, fear, anxious, you know, rather than actually understanding what they're talking to me about. So I just wonder if that's kind of the pillar thing that is really getting much more clear about who we are and what we believe in. Yeah, but, but look, I think what parents would push back on listening to you right now is, yeah, but Ellie, it's 4.15 in the afternoon. I've got pasta on the stove. My boss wants me to call them. And my kid is saying, but mom, mom, um, this new video game, I know it's a little violent. And I just need to figure out my principles. No. <laughs> so my, my go-to answer that I've tried to habituate myself with now is I can't answer you right now. I cannot answer you. It, it, you need to come back again. You need to give me time to think about it. And I'll tell you in, you know, I'll tell you tomorrow. But yeah. I, I, because otherwise I know I'm, I'm answering blind based on just trying to stop the questions rather than like actually knowing what I'm talking about. So I've been trying really hard to habituate my answer being, if I don't know the answer, I don't know the answer to that. And I can't answer you right now. Which, you know, look, I mean, you know, that, um, that idea of demonstrating uh, for our children the humility of not having all the answers in the moment and I need to think is a great lesson. But at the end of the day, you know, um, a lot of parents will say, and by the way, I, I have kids, so I, I have empathy for this position, which is if I say no to this, I got to deal with the consequences of my kids fighting in the living room for right. two hours or whatever. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so what I what I'll tell what I'll tell a parent, you know, what I'll of course I do that too. On, <laughs> you know, is that you know I think it's I think it's absolutely doable 
to uh, convey to your kids that you're not clear on this yet. Okay, and you need to think about this in terms of a rule for the home or an ongoing. But in the moment, in the moment, can you live with it? You know, can you live with it? Meaning you don't love it. Right. Can you live with it? Right. Like, what's the worst case scenario? So, you know, you know, a parent will say um, I, this comes up in my practice all the time now. How, how many hours is too many hours for my kids to be on their uh, Xbox or computer or whatever? And what and and they're really worried because for so many years parents have been told if your kids are on the computer for X amount of hours it's very dangerous. Well, yeah. that's all mucked up in 2020 when everyone's telling you your kids can't play with their friends and they can't go outside and they can't. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, well, right. what exactly am I supposed to do with these kids? So right. what you know, um, the fact remains that um, a lot of parents in, with coronavirus are on the fly having to answer questions, something Ellie, you and I had talked about many months ago of what's essential here. So what's essential right. for most parents is keep my kids safe. Finished. During coronavirus, when things open up, okay, well, you, you know, you can. Socialization, like all of those things. So right, if your kid is stuff. home, right. So for a lot of parents, the, the, um, the math goes like this. If my kid is home, and they're on the computer. I don't love it. I can live with it, but it's a lot better than my 16 year old going to a party at their friend's house. No one's wearing masks. They're all drinking. They're coming back here um, and bringing and bringing po a possible virus back here. It's not a great, it, it's not the perfect situation, but you know what? Parenting isn't about perfect. Parenting is about right. getting clear in our principles, which evolve over time and answering the question, can I live with this? And by answering the question, can I live with this? de facto, we are in a way defining our principles because mm, principles right. don't have to do, I have to love this. Principles are, I am willing to do this. I am not right. willing to do that. Okay. I got it. Okay. This is good. Actually. I, I feel like we clarified some really fundamental points in terms of the whole, you know, the whole oeuvre of, of Bowen family systems so that we can refer back to it. Uh, next week, Boys in the Hood with uh, Emmanuel I, Marsh. I'm so, I'm so excited. excited. Yeah, me too. I love this film. Um, okay, amazing. So hopefully the podcast, I apologize for some of the podcasts being late. Uh, sometimes the platform that I'm using um, is having some technical issues. So it sometimes takes a while for stuff to upload. So I will hopefully have everything up quickly, quickly. And uh, that's it for today. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.